what is communication? And why is it scary sometimes to speak up? How can we access something that's deeper than self-consciousness? And so that's what this is. It actually shifts your focus from self-consciousness. What are they going to think of me? Oh, my God. You know, to generosity. What can I give to these people? Everybody has that ability within themselves to make that shift. I have never taught it to anybody who could not make that shift. And it takes like six or seven minutes. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. I'm so honored that Madeline Bruiser has agreed to be featured as a guest on this series. When I first read her book, The Art of Practicing, more than 20 years ago, it helped to transform my experience as a performer and teacher and on many aspects of my life. Although Madeline's teaching is aimed primarily at classical pianists and other musicians, I find that much of what she talks about will resonate for everybody trying to get in touch with their emotions, their connection to beauty and meaning, and their experience of being in their bodies. If you happen to be listening to this when it is first released, you should check out Madeline's free interactive workshop on May 11th at 1pm Eastern. Her website is linked to this episode in the description and you can sign up there. If the topics we address in this conversation are of interest to you, you'll be interested that many of these important issues have come up with past guests and upcoming guests. Feel free to reach out to me through my website, leahroseman.com, if you want suggestions for episodes you've missed, or if you want to sign up for my podcast newsletter, in which you'll get access to sneak peeks for upcoming episodes. Hi, Madeline. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Oh, you're so welcome. I really appreciate this opportunity to share some fantastic techniques with musicians. And, you know, we'll talk about it, but I think a lot of what you're sharing is applicable to people who aren't performers as well. I think there's a great... Oh, I hear from them. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So if I can just say this book of yours, The Art of Practicing, Mm -hmm. this is maybe the fourth copy I've bought because I keep giving it away to people. (laughs) And... It was a pleasure rereading it. I hadn't read it in maybe 20 years. And uh, it it resonated with me even more now that I'm older and I've done Mm. some more work. So could we actually start with the book? Because many people may know you from that. And and what motivated you to write it? Um, What motivated me to write it is that I had uh, discovered so many things that could completely transform people's playing. I was thinking about this in preparing for this interview, and um, some of it I actually discovered as a student um, when I was at Indiana University in a very kind of ivory tower situation. Um, It was just trees and going through the trees from the dorm to the practice room and back, and that was my life for two years. And I was also studying with Menachem Pressler, who was very uh, focused on genuineness, creativity, spontaneity, um, being an artist. And so in those two years, I, after those two years with him, I felt like I'd become an artist. I knew what an artist was. And I spent a lot of time in the practice room kind of just exploring things. It was not a very competitive environment. And um, so it was very conducive. I was 17 when I went there. And um, some of the things that are in the book, I actually discovered in those practice rooms. Like I realized, so uh, we're studying ear training, but I'm not applying it to the music I'm playing. I got curious, can I sing the left hand while I play the right hand of a Bach partita? And I mentioned this in the book, and I spent the whole week doing that um, for that piece. Um, 
I really only heard about half of the notes in the left hand. I knew I didn't hear them because I couldn't sing them. So I, I worked on it and it completely transformed the piece. And I maintained that kind of practicing for quite a while after that. Actually, I would say uh, my whole time there. And when I switched schools, it, it kind of dissolved in, in a different atmosphere. When I was in New York City, I was at Juilliard. It was uh, wonderful to be there. I loved my friends. Uh, I was real, it was a real tribe experience and I needed that. But um, I forgot about some of the things that I had discovered when I, my mind was in a very quiet place. And I didn't discover them again until 10 years um, after I left Indiana. So this was um, seven years after I left Juilliard, when I started meditation practice. And um, that, of course, quieted my mind down. Um, and I became more uh, in touch with my listening and how my hands felt at the piano and all these things. It might be interesting to talk about the fact that when you did this meditation for the first time, it was as a result of a crisis and that you stopped, yeah. you stopped playing for a while. Um, so I played the worst audition in my life at 29 and, um, it was, uh, kind of a lot of pressure because I, I was trying to take my career to the next level. And many people suggested I play a New York debut. So I needed funding for that. So there was a Rockefeller grant audition and it was held at the San Francisco opera house. I was living in the Bay area at that time. And I prepared, I was very well prepared, but the night before I, I couldn't sleep, you know, worrying about memory lapses primarily and freaking out. And I tried everything. I, I ran up and down my driveway to try to wear myself out so I could sleep. I stood up and I spun around in circles to get dizzy thinking then I could sleep. Nothing worked. And I woke up with this terribly strained neck. And I had to take codeine to go to the audition. <laughs> so I get there and I got through all the repertoire. There were no memory lapses, but these very bizarre mistakes happened. And um, I think it's partly because of where the audition was. It was on the stage of the San Francisco Opera House. And as a little girl, I had gone there for concerts. I heard Leon Fleischer there when I was seven years old, you know, so... To me, this was a venerable place where the world's greatest artists performed. And there I was on this stage with a 3,000 seat empty hall, except for a few judges in like row eight or something. And I walked out and I just didn't belong there. I knew I did not belong there. And so I got through it, but um, that was it. I wasn't, in, I wasn't accepted into the final round. And I said, I have to figure this out. I have to find a way. I know I was prepared. Why can't I relax? Why can't I find the relaxation and confidence I need to play in an important situation and take my career to the next level? And I had started meditating a year before and it didn't take. I tried it for a couple of days because some friends had recommended it for some reason. And to me, it just didn't do anything for me. But there was a little bell in my head said, you know, why don't you try that again? So I did. And uh, I went to the meditation center in Berkeley where I was living and 40 minutes every evening, I was just doing it and I was loving it. I, I felt like I was coming home. So it was the right time. And it is something that, you know, people can't really do it if they don't feel interested or ready. But I was very ready at that point. I was desperate, but also it just felt so good to just sit there and let my mind relax. And, um, 
I felt like I was more in my body and it was great. And I didn't want to practice the piano. I didn't touch the instrument for two months, um, but I was having a wonderful time. I was reading women's magazines and making curtains for my apartment and going to restaurants and ordering three desserts and then you know, being too embarrassed to have more, I would go to another restaurant and have two more desserts, and then I would buy some cookies on the way home. And you know, so I gained ten pounds. I had to lose that, but um, it was a a level of relaxation I had never allowed myself in my life. I was always a high achieving kid, and uh, you know, typical passionate musician. I want to go for it, and I I just had never heard of anything besides practicing every day of the year and, you know, the whole thing. And I kind of worried a little, like, am I going to want to go back to the piano after this? But it, after two months, I was ready to go back. And I sat on the bench and I could not believe what was happening. It was a totally altered experience. Um, I just sort of sat there and I looked at the score. I said, well, what do I want to look at? Do I want to play some big chords and have that feeling or do I want to explore some phrasing over here? And I just trusted myself. Mm. And I really think that's the essence of what meditation does for people. And I'm speaking about mindfulness meditation in particular, um, because it connects you to who you really are and gets you out of the concepts in your head. Well, I'm a musician. I'm supposed to practice six hours a day. But instead, it's like, okay, I'm this person who's feeling relaxed right now. What am I really interested in exploring in this piece of music? So it was actually getting back to that kind of exploratory, relaxed state that I was in as a student at Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, only it was much more intense because it was constant at that point. And I started singing the left hand and playing the right hand again. And I started listening for the sound that was actually coming out of the piano instead of the sound that was in my head. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing how my hands felt with more um, acuity. It was just that um, my perceptions became sharper and clearer because my mind had uh, unwound and it wasn't cluttering my natural awareness. So that changed everything. And then after that, uh, my performing changed and everything changed. And my teaching completely changed. Before we get to that, I just wanted to touch on what you po- said because it resonated with me. I remember a moment when I heard my violin sound coming as it sounded, mm. but not everyone can relate to that. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Well, now I teach a technique that's actually um, going to, we're going to, I'm going to go into it in depth okay. in my upcoming free interactive workshop, but um, it's called the body and sound awareness technique. And it's deliberately, it's a deliberate mindfulness practice where you get out of your head and you pay attention, you focus on how the sound is actually affecting you, mm-hmm. you know. And the reality is that sound is in air and it is penetrating our system. But if we're not feeling what it actually does from moment to moment, if we're thinking, oh, the phrase has to go up and down and it has to do this, and my teacher said that, or I heard about this, or I think this. But if we're not actually noticing what the sound is doing to us as a human being, just, you know, like it, like we're our first audience, that's the thing. And if we're not allowing ourselves the pleasure and the joy and the delight of receiving this glorious music that was written, um, we're really denying ourselves <laughs> what our birthright is as artists, as musicians, you know. So 
Um, I'm really glad to hear you had that experience. It's wonderful. And how did you feel when you had that experience? Um, you know, it was later in my career. I, I mean, I'm sure I had it before, but it was, I was getting a coaching from a colleague and they, they said, why don't you just enjoy the beautiful sound coming out of your violin? And it hit me really hard because I realized in that moment, I really wasn't. And just, it was like a switch kind of went on and I almost felt embarrassed that I had been so closed in. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's how we're trained. I mean, we're trained to to have ideas and and not trust or open up to actual perceptions. You know, so mm -hmm. it's not that there's anything wrong with the ideas, but there's a great imbalance. You know, if we don't learn to trust what we're perceiving, what we're hearing, what we're feeling, uh, and and to get the music in our body, which is where it really lives. And if it doesn't live in our body, then it's not going to go out from our body to our audience's body. They're going to just sit there, you know, how hummer or, oh, isn't she excellent or something. But if you're actually filled with the vibrancy of this incredible stuff, it's going to immediately go out to them. They're going to pick it up instantly and they're going to feel it with you. That's that's a real performance. So I'm so delighted to hear that you had that experience. It's great. Now, in terms of your your life's purpose as you you made this quite a big switch from being really focused on being a piano soloist to being a very special kind of teacher. Mm. I I don't really understand why you felt you had to give up the performing. It's a great question. And I've been asked this a number of times, of course, and to some extent, I don't understand either, but I think the reality is that we're often not who we think we are. It's not that I regret ever having a performing career. I mean, I'm thrilled that I had a performing career. It meant the world to me. And um, if I hadn't had it, I wouldn't be able to teach performers, you know. But something uh, opened up in my mind on a completely different level. And I think this is what meditation does. And this is after eight years of meditation. So including very intensive programs where I was, you know, sitting all day with a group for a month and going to a three-month program with study and practice alternating and a lot of stuff. And um, it took eight years for it to sink in to my system so strongly that my posture at the piano began to be like my posture on the meditation cushion. And it was a, a spring of 1985 when a couple of uh, two or three heartbreaking experiences happened that spring. My cat died and a romance fell apart. And I forget the other one. And I was just devastated. And I sat there on my meditation cushion for two hours at a time, feeling drenched in pain. Um, but I knew that I had to feel it in order to get through it. Anything we want to heal, we have to go through it to heal it. And one day around that time, I'm sitting down to practice and I'm noticing that instead of, you know, swaying around at the piano, like I did for many years and leaning over and doing all that stuff, I was sitting like I was meditating and what was moving and very freely were my arms and hands. And they were just, you know, and I also wasn't dropping my wrist low like I did before. Oh, thank goodness. Could have had an injury from that. Um, and uh, it was just uh, shocking. So that week I asked all my students to sit like that and they instantly played hundred percent better. And I, I remember this so vividly. I stood there in the room looking at the student sitting at the piano 
And I, it was like light bulbs flashing in front of my face. Oh my God, I don't need to go hitting my head against the wall to get a world famous performing career, touring around. I want to teach this. This is so important. This is totally transforming people on the spot. And it was just, that was it. And there were other factors in my life. And I think um, many musicians could uh, identify with this. I, at the time I was uh, 37, when I changed my posture and started sh shifting to teaching as my primary focus, I wasn't married um, and I had stuff I knew I needed to work through. And um, I wanted to balance my personal life with my professional life. And, you know, it's easy if you're any kind of artist, visual artist, musician, actor, dancer, whatever, it, it means so much to you. And it's such an open channel. You know, it's like you can receive magic somehow, go out there, give it to your audience, and you're connected to something very powerful and human and profound, you know? And so it can be very satisfying and rewarding, but at a certain point in, in your life, you might wonder, you know, as I did, well, hey, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if a man could be my best friend instead of this big black Steinway? I mean, <laughs> you know? And um, so I just started focusing on that as well. And um, my life completely changed. Um, and it was important because for women, you know, your late thirties, if you want to have a baby, which I did, mm -hmm. it was the clock ticking. So all of these things combined, but I think the primary thing really was that I felt, oh my God, I have discovered gold and look what it's doing for these people. And I have to teach this. People need this. And when I started giving the seminars, which began in my living room on the art of practicing, um, I invited all kinds of people, not just pianists. Mm -hmm. And a trombonist asked me to work with him. And um, I said, well, I don't know anything about your instrument, but I'll try. And it was like, I could see right away. When he slid the slide, he was leaning his whole body forward. I said, you don't need to do that. Stand like this, slide. Immediately, it was so much easier and he got a better sound. And the other thing I could see, and I do totally credit meditation practice for this, is that his lip area was not really, he wasn't tuned in to the sensations here. And so his sound was inconsistent and there were problems. I said, can you tune into what it feels like here to blow the instrument? You know, and so then, you know, the harpist, the violist, the oboist, the, you know, it, it started like that. Not like I did a whole lot of it. And I'm always very careful to tell everybody that uh, it's very important to have an expert teacher for technique for your instrument. Nevertheless, you know, for example, um, last year, a uh, trumpet player in Denmark, very successful trumpet player in Denmark, contacted me and uh, wanted um, about seven lessons. And he wrote a master's thesis on the project. And um, it was transformative for him. So I, I just, and it wasn't just the posture. I think he kind of had that, but there was all the listening things and also the rhythmic grouping, which is really powerful, which I also want to mention later oh, yeah. today. So, so that's how it happened. <laughs> so Madeline, before we get more into this work, it would be a really nice place to share the video of you playing Chopin from a while oh, ago. Sure. So if you could speak to when that uh, performance was recorded and what, what it means. 
It was recorded a year after this whole shift happened, and um, I didn't want to perform anymore. I wanted to give uh, seminars at colleges, but this musician friend of mine said, well, you know, you're going to have to play. You're going to have to submit a recording of your playing. So I made this recording, and it turned out to be... You know, and it was a wonderful filmmaker friend of mine who did the video really, really well. And um, so I did it for that purpose. Okay. And I'm very grateful to have it now. <laughs> so I was 38 at the time. And I, I'm not, you know, 100% crazy about it. But I, I do feel very good about it. And now here is Madeline Bruiser performing Chopin's Fantasy Impromptu.
thanks so much for sharing that. So beautiful and inspiring. You're welcome. So you had mentioned rhythmic grouping and I, I that whole way you, you talk about rhythmic vitality in the book um, is, is very, it, it's hard to talk about rhythm and you do it so well. If we could, if you could just go into that a little bit. I have some pictures actually right here. So the, this is the thing. It's really uh, not often taught. Um, I discovered Bard most of it in one of those practice rooms of Indiana. I, um, got bits and pieces of it from a couple of uh, piano teachers in the San Francisco Bay area, but not the whole thing, but I developed it so that I can teach it to people and uh, really make a huge difference in their playing. Um, I know um, probably still is taught at the Curtis Institute, but I know in the um, mid 20th century, it was taught by Marcel Moise, who's a flutist and uh, Marcel, uh, he was the opus of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Yeah, Tabuto. Yeah. And at Curtis. And then one of the uh, faculty members of the Art of Practicing Institute, which I, I formed about 20 years ago, um, uh, trumpeter Stephen Burns, he learned it at this Paris Conservatory from Pierre Thibault, uh, who was a trumpeter. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen was at the Paris Conservatory for six or eight years, and he knows rhythmic grouping inside out. He's really brilliant with it. And he said it made absolutely huge difference in his playing. And then another faculty member, Kirk Ferguson, who is a trombonist, he learned it from Leo Potts. And there is a brass or wind method called the LSP, Lindemann Sobel Potts method, which includes rhythmic grouping. And they teach it slightly differently, but it's the same thing. And Kirk said that the year that he learned that, he got into the super finals for the Los Angeles Philharmonic principal trumpet position, um, the uh, semifinals for the uh, Boston Symphony's second trumpet. I mean, and, um, and then he got his job as assistant principal, not trumpet, trombonist, sorry. He got his job as the assistant principal trombonist in the Milwaukee Symphony where he is now. And he says his playing just went like that when he learned rhythmic grouping. And what it does is it connects you to natural momentum and away from this false idea that we have to count like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And if you count like that, and if you try to dance a waltz like that, you're going to feel dead. I mean, you just can't. You have to go one, two, three, one. So this picture shows how rhythmic grouping is really like waves. So the crest of the wave in a three beat bar or in a triplet, it's on the two. So two, three, one, the wave ebbs on one. And then it starts getting ready, two, three, one, two, three, one, like that. And if you have four, and let's say this is 16th notes, you know, we're taught da 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 and it's very, very boring. But if you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, so yep, da 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 And jazz musicians instinctively get this. And there's also a jazz musician named Hal Galper. I still need to get his book. It's called Forward Motion. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the basic, it's the same idea. One and two and three. And I have people at lessons standing up and getting this in their body by going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, so that the whole body feels it. And as soon as they sit down, they have it. Mm -hmm. I also had a student make a photocopy of a piece, white out the bar lines and draw them right after the downbeat. And he got it. 
Yeah. So in other words, what it looks like on the page can be very deceiving and, and we need to understand um, how it really works. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time for people to get it because all their life they've been doing it the other way. Yeah. Yeah. So you've, have you worked with that? I feel like when I studied Baroque violin with Stanley Ritchie, we addressed this. I just mm. feel like I absorbed it in different ways over my career and I can't really point maybe certain That's conductors great. have talked that way. That's great. I certainly feel like it's been part of my way of thinking about rhythm and certainly listening to different styles of music a lot, um, different traditional music and jazz and so on helps. He's a classical true. musician. Right. I'm so glad to hear that. That's fantastic. I know certain conductors have it. Mm-hmm. And there's a conductor named Andrew McGill in New York. A student of mine was in the chorus for the Messiah with him. And so he had them uh, rehearse in daughter to them. So, you know, unto us the son is given, but they, unto us the son is given. So they, they were really like, you know, on a horse to really, so that when they did the written rhythm, unto us the son, it was alive, you know, mm-hmm. and it does take that kind of thing. And I have people practicing this by literally stopping two, three, one, two, three, one. And it doesn't mean that the two is louder, but it's their rhythmic emphasis. It's where the most rhythmic energy is. Um, and once you practice hearing those stops, then you can go through the phrase, you know, without stopping, but feeling those groups instead of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, and this is how I discovered part of it in Indiana, is that when you stop on the on the downbeat, there can be a very interesting new harmony there. And that's an opportunity to let the sound of the instrument come in. And to really absorb the change that's happening so that your body is really, I mean, the music is dancing in your body. Mm-hmm. In terms of ear training, as a pianist, was it always easy for you to hear the colors of chords, if you know what I mean? Well, color was a word I really started hearing almost every single lesson with Menachem Pressler. He was crazy about color, still is, I'm sure. And he, you know, somebody I went to school with, like me, was asked to contribute to a book about him. And she said, uh, he would just say something while she was playing, like silver. And then she said, and I could do it. <laughs> you know, so, but he was, he was very like the childlike artist kind of person. And he lived in a magical world. And um, it was great, you know, to talk about color and hear about color. And, and when I teach Ravel, for instance, mm-hmm. to my students, it's so helpful for them because we focus so much on the color. Then they go back to Beethoven or whoever, and they're hearing colors. And this is so important. But I want to make a distinction between tone color in terms of mood and character and like harmonic color, because you're mm-hmm. playing a harmonic instrument and I'm a, a violinist. So it's mostly, you know, linear. Well, I've taught a lot of non-pianists and I always ask them to, go to their keyboard and block out the chords and sing the line that they are playing. And it totally changes everything because the, they have to, they have to do what we have to do is just to hear more than one thing at a time. You know, it makes me think about Bobby McFerrin had the orchestra sing their parts. That's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. fun also. That know. just happened to my orchestra with the conductor last week. Oh, really? Yeah. Who's the conductor? Jessica Cottis. She's a wonderful uh, Australian uh, conductor based in England. Great. I'm so glad to hear that. 
and we did it. We didn't resist. <laughs> it was. And so you had a good time doing it. Actually, yes, it That's was. Great. It was fun. Fantastic. Um, if we could talk about how we hear ourselves and go back to when you were eighteen and you got a special gift from your family, I found this story very moving. Mm. Yeah, and I was 18. I was at Indiana for my second year. And um, my family for my 18th birthday sent me a small tape recorder. So, of course, we didn't have iPhones. We didn't have computers, you know. Uh, but it was a mini reel-to-reel. So the reels are like that big. And I still have a reel that I mentioned in the book about um, my family sending me a little cassette of each of them wishing me happy birthday. And so my father played a Chopin nocturne. He's a wonderful amateur pianist, almost totally self-taught. My sister played the flute and he accompanied her. They got the dog to bark when prompted by the doorbell, you know. And uh, my grandfather, who was uh, originally from Ukraine, uh, which was part of Russia at the time, read a passage from Dr. Zhivago. And all I remember was, art is like life, it is organic. And it just, you know, it went really right in. I mean, you know, grandparents are a connection to something so long ago. I mean, I remember being in front of our house and he was working in the yard or something. And I said, well, this is getting getting dirty here. He says, that's not dirt. It's earth, <laughs> you know, and that kind of influence is important. And so art is organic like life. Um that I use that in that chapter about rhythm because music needs to feel like life and we need to maximize our aliveness as performers. And if we maximize our aliveness when we're practicing, we're having a wonderful experience instead of, you know, forcing ourselves to do four repetitions of this or mm -hmm. whatever. Now, nowadays, it's so easy for people to record themselves, but people yeah. <laughs> maybe still don't do it enough because they're afraid of what they might hear. They're not in love with their own playing, would you say? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I did record my practicing. They wanted me to be my own teacher. So uh, that was the idea. And um, I think that fit in with how I was experiencing my time there. Mm -hmm. But people are afraid of anything that shows them who they are. Mm. And, you know, we're not supposed to be perfect as if it was possible in the first place. Anyway, um, there's a famous quote from Barishnikov. I assume it's genuine. I've seen it on Facebook a few times, you know, like it's not about being perfect. There's an obsession with technique that can kill your best impulses, you know, and um, it's much better to be vulnerable. And then he says something like, uh, trust me, you know, <laughs> of course we trust Barishnikov. Um, and I think the culture right now is at this kind of place where we're ready to be more and more and more vulnerable and real and communicative and trusting of ourselves and trusting of uh, the kind of communication we can have with people. But it's a kind of still a kind of a crisis people have about performing. I mean, I think the pandemic really changed people because they appreciated the opportunity to perform after that. Mm -hmm. um, a student of mine is actually the lead guitar in a well-known band. And um, I mean, they play Madison Square Garden, 30,000 people, this sort of thing. And he told me that after the pandemic, when they got to perform for a live audience again, he 
said they wouldn't have cared if we were terrible. They they were going to love us no matter what. And it changes the mindset of the performer. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is really good. And um, so I'm actually working on a second book about performing that I don't know sure how long it's going to take me to finish it, but I interviewed 50 performers, mm-hmm. actors and dancers, as well as musicians. And the things they said, I mean, it's all about vulnerability and being real. And um, that's what your audience wants. And if you can uh, get used to that, used to that, that place, um, where, you know, it's scary, but, you know, it's so real. It's so alive. That's, I mean, that's why we do this anyway. That's why we want to be on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce the series. And there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian, which is close to $2 US or two euros, and getting access to unique perks. The link is in the description. Now back to the episode. Your husband's an actor. Yes. And he's done some of the same teaching you do related to the art of practicing. I was looking at some of the workshops he'd done. I found it very interesting. Oh yeah, he's done a program called Meditation for Actors and he's taught it at a few different places. And um, he's gearing up to get back into that after our move last year. Um, yeah, I mean, it's totally transformative for actors, um, especially the performing beyond fear exercise, I have to say, which I uh, developed in 2006 and um, which, by the way, will be uh, taught in the free interactive workshop that's coming up. Um, that That exercise, <laughs> you know, there's nothing like it, actually. But, you know, Stanislavski, who was a very, very transformative figure in the education of actors, the training of actors, was a meditator. Mm-hmm. Alan Arkin meditates. Ellen Burstyn meditates. Um, um, Peter Coyote and uh, Richard Gere. And I mean, and there's a reason, you know, Katie Lang, the singer, is a serious meditator. And all of them have said, you know, when I started doing meditation, my my performing completely opened up. This exercise, which I was hoping we could talk about performing beyond fear. I mean, I did it again today and it's, it is very different every time, but it's not a meditation, it's reflection. Well, originally I called it the contemplation and I taught it first at a 2006 program that was called meditation, the meditation for musicians retreat in Vermont, which you know, it was at a meditation center for six years. And then fortunately we started doing it at a university music department in Pennsylvania. And it was a whole, you know, great thing, but um, I called it the contemplation. Then six of us in New York sat down at dinner at a restaurant and said, well, let's figure out a name for this thing. And people were throwing around names. And I said, I know, we're going to call it Performing Beyond Fear, a self-empowering exercise for musicians. But I shortened it to the Performing Beyond Fear exercise. <laughs> and it isn't just for musicians or even other performing artists. Um, somebody I know had to give a fundraising pitch at a board of directors meeting. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, she learned this from me a couple of days in advance of that meeting. Totally considers herself a non-spiritual person. 
but she said, I like the way I felt doing this exercise. And so she's kind of in the middle of the meeting, she kind of went there and she did it. And, you know, and then when it was time for her to give her pitch, she gave it. And she emails me right away. She says, you won't believe this. We just got a $1 million pledge. <laughs> so there's something to it. And it's, people have done it for business interviews and mm-hmm. whatever. Um, because it's about what does it really mean to you to communicate something to another person that is going to change the relationship or you or them or, you know, what, what is the, what is communication? Um, and why is it scary sometimes to speak up and, um, how can we access something that's deeper than self-consciousness? And so that's what this is. It actually shifts your focus from self-consciousness. What are they going to think of me? Oh my God, you know, to generosity. What can I give to these people? And everybody has that ability within themselves to make that shift. I have never taught it to anybody who could not make that shift. And it takes six, six or seven minutes. I just encourage people to go there, to go to the, the power that's inside of the vulnerability. You cannot get to your power if you don't open up and be vulnerable. Just, you can't, it's no way. So when people click on your website, which will be linked in the description of this episode, it'll take them to that exercise. And actually it's linked to the um, album on Bandcamp, which I got. And in there, there's actually reflections from some of the participants, which I found interesting to listen to as well, and definitely resonated with me. And one of the things I found interesting, because I've done this exercise uh, many times since then, is just how many, it's like a weird stream of consciousness in terms of, especially the idea of lineage, that it's not at all just the people you've studied with, but pieces you've heard. I mean, especially I've been a performer for so long, just all the many people I've performed with have inspired me and it it extends out so far. And it can, I find it's like this incredibly beautiful web that gives you strength. Yeah. It's like what I said about my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I think the older we get, the more we value what we inherited from parents, teachers, grandparents, whoever, you know, um, and you know, uh, the lineage includes whoever invented your instrument mm-hmm. or all kinds of things. And it, it's in whatever comes into your head at the moment. So, um, and that's only part of the exercise. So lineage, uh, I think for all of us as human beings, lineage is a terribly important thing. It's like, it grounds us in who we really are, what our life really means, what we really want from it. Um, what direction we want to go in. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, my, my grandparents all escaped persecution in Ukraine as teenagers. So, and they went to Canada and they had to start a whole new life. They didn't know the language. It's like all this stuff, right? So that means whenever I reflect on them, there's bravery, there's real guts and um, uh, courage and, um, and then they did it. And then their kids ended up going to the U S where I was born, you know, but fortunately I knew all my grandparents as a kid. Um, I, I don't know this stuff. It's just, 
And now you know, we have a daughter who's 25, and the older she gets, the more she appreciates us. And it's really powerful, you know. Um, and the thing is, right, right at this point in my life, I recently turned 75, my focus is on the legacy I need to leave. Um, and I have no idea, you know, the ripple effect of it, but I just know I have to do what I can. So, so it's all like, we're actually part of the lineage. We, we've inherited a lot. Mm -hmm. And in terms of one of the other strands of this exercise, in terms of um, appreciating the, the care and time you've put into, to learning what it is, what you do, let's say you're not even a performer, but you're, you know, whatever it is that you do, you're a scientist. I think it really applies. But then we, a lot of us have this burden of perfectionism sitting on our shoulder, mm -hmm. saying you're not good enough. You've never, you're never prepared enough. How do you talk to your students about working on that? With a lot of sympathy. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there and we all have tendencies to give into messages from inner demons at times and feel like I don't, I'm not good enough for this or that, or these kind of people aren't going to like me because, but I mean, it's just tapes you know, running. I don't know. I just point them in the direction of what's underneath it. And like it says in my book, you know, the real reason people feel bad about not playing as well as they wanted to play is that they care. And that is the best thing, you know? So it's so important to appreciate how much you care because that's your heart. And we're not particularly educated in music schools to focus on our heart, um, but hopefully we have a warm, loving teacher who helps us do that. But um, you can actually train yourself to open your heart more, not only to yourself, which is the starting place actually, but to other people and to then, of course, to the music. You have to start by opening to yourself. Mm -hmm. And when people can invite the audience in, I think that was a big change for me when I started to be able to do that, not feel like I needed to block them out in order to deal with nerves, but welcome them. You know, why do they show up? <laughs> you know, it's like, you think they're there because they want to sit there and check off a lot of boxes. Well, she played a wrong note in bar 82 and she did this and she doesn't seem, you know, nobody's sitting there doing that. Um, they want to experience beauty and joy and life and, and uh, awe, you know, that's, that's why they're there. <laughs> they they want to have a beautiful experience, you know, but of course, if we've had a lot of judgment in our past, you know, particularly I think as little kids or from, abusive teachers or whatever, it can be damaging and it can be hard to get past that. And so I think everybody needs a teacher who can counteract the effects of all that, all those messages. And I think community is incredibly essential, mm -hmm. um, which was really what's so great about the uh, summer programs that we taught. And of course the pandemic kind of put an end and I'm not sure maybe they'll, they'll start again. Um, but you spend a week with people and every morning after your meditation hours, you have two hours of meditation and then different kinds of meditation. And then there's a one hour discussion group and everybody can just talk, you know, 
I mean, somebody comes from a foreign country says, you know, the sexism at the auditions for my instrument is so horrendous. It's really upsetting. And she just bursts into tears. And then she gets all the support from other people or whatever it is, you know, or my teacher said this, you know, I feel like I don't belong Mm -hmm. among musicians and all these things. I mean, everybody has messages that shouldn't really be there. And so when you find out that people care and they've had similar experiences and similar bad messages, it's extremely helpful. So all the online teaching I do with groups, same thing. Mm -hmm. And I know you were going to uh, spend a few minutes maybe showing some things at the piano. There's, I, I just want to kind of tell three stories about problems that people have presented to me at lessons or programs. I had this student, let's call her Carol, and she had an injury, her hand and forearm. And her problem was that she was holding fingers above the keys. This is like 99% of people who come to me don't realize that they're doing this and don't know how to fix it. Um, Maybe they've had a teacher who told them not to do it, but they didn't guide them in a methodical way. So... Um, you know, she had pain here because when you lift your fingers, you're using muscles here. And then when you um, bend other fingers at the same time, you're using the muscles underneath your forearm. Mm-hmm. It's called co-contraction. And so her whole forearm was really painful and she just had to stop playing for a while. So she came to this five-week program and the first thing she had to learn how to do was to just after each note, check that the other four fingers are on the keys and not up anywhere. And then, and really put her mind to each one to tell them, you know, so after she did that, next thing was to do a piece. Like that, you know, so it's obviously not making music, but then once her fingers were trained to be down, which took her about a week, she pretty much had it. Um, practicing just 10 minutes at a time so she could really focus. Then she worked on getting her arm to support her fingers with the arm weight. And so if I'm going to move into a short finger on a black key, that will... So I'm kind of sliding in like this, which is allowing the arm weight to help the finger put the key down Mm -hmm. so that you get a sense of flow. So she worked with that. And so there was less work for the fingers. So that's one story. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, Yumiko. She wanted to play with emotional intensity without physical tension. And so, you know, like I described how, you know, that my posture changed after I started doing meditation. So, so I used to play, you know, you know, like to get, because it's so intense and I have to say something, right? And I um, I asked her to focus on her sitting bones being rooted into the bench. So she's solid, all right? And, and then just put her attention at the heart level, like what does the music feel like to you? And then keep the sitting bone focus and the heart focus. And then, um, and then just let the arm go. And then she can do, you know... And, and have a beautiful sound and feel like she's involved emotionally without this mm-hmm. tight thing here. And this is an extremely common thing. 
Um, Laura came to the summer program three sessions and she wanted to have power with her arm. And she, you know, similarly to Yumiko, she was feeling like she had to lean to get power and she wasn't getting a good sound and it was too much work. So same thing. I asked her to focus on three contact points. So there's the sitting bones on the bench. There's also the feet on the floor. And then there's the end of the finger bones at the bottom of the keys. And so if you think of an arrow going down like this, representing gravity, you're actually getting momentum from the force of gravity by springing from your fingertips with a free arm like this. So she got minimum effort, maximum power, and she got the sound she wanted. Um, so these are just three things, but they go a really long way. I mean, if somebody really wants to be expressive and have fluidity, you know, you can't get that fluidity without the arm being free. And when we do this, even with a straight back, um, we're compromising our range of motion and range of motion pretty much translates as a range of sound. Mm -hmm. So we don't have easy delicacy or easy power like that. And basically the arm at the piano functions like the bow for the string player. It's, it's the fluidity and the flow uh, or the breath for the wind player or the singer. And that's really what it does. And, um, you know, when people actually learn to play without looking at their hands, their arm learns all kinds of distances uh, by feel. And so tuning into what the arm feels like and where it's traveling to is super helpful. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to show those little bits because um, they're extremely common and they really go a long way. And um, in terms of this, so I had a student who was falling on her thumb, meaning that she didn't have her arm weight balanced on her thumb. She would play on the whole thumb, right? So as soon as I said, well, notice that the arm is balanced on the end of that finger. It's not how high should your wrist be. It's do I feel the sensation of my arm weight going into the key? So now you can play the thumb, but your arm weight is still balanced on it. If you go like this, your arm weight's going into the wrist. It's not helping anything. I'm curious, like I see so many really quite excellent pianists, but they're, they make me uncomfortable because they're very much hunched over the keys and kind of staring, you know, staring at the keyboard. Do you see this a lot as well? Yeah, I see it all the time. <laughs> well, I used to be one of them. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, um, slaving over a hot piano is the, the idea. <laughs> right? um, you know, we all have so many habits in our lives, not just in our music making. And so it can be very foreign and a lot of people are not ready to consider changing a habit like that. And I used to equate it with expressiveness and passion. And um, the reality is, you know, the art of practicing is really about uh, balancing activity with receptivity, mm. learning to be less active and more receptive. And I was thinking about this in the last couple of days. It's also less reactive. You know, here's stormy Beethoven. So I'm going to get all like this 
Well, the the storm is supposed to be happening in your body, not mm-hmm. in your fists, you know. And and it's a tall order to contain the powerful energy of a composer like that. So um, it takes a, a person who's ready to make a change open. And also, I never force anything. I say, try this. How does it feel? How does it sound? Um, very much dialogue with the students so that we co-create the lesson. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure, you know, you've seen all manner of things with string instruments as well. Um, but I really feel um, encouraged because in the last couple of decades, there's so much change. I mean, Fleischer and Grafman went public with piano injuries in 1980. Performing Arts Medicine was born. Alexander lessons started becoming popular musicians schools started employing alexander teachers and you know then people getting into feldenkrais which is incredible and body mapping and all these things so i think uh the evolution of music teaching is really happening right now mm-hmm. i myself i've studied different kind of body mapping over the years i did quite a lot of alexander and feldenkrais and tai chi tried different things over the years but what all those things gave me was this awareness in my daily life away from the instrument that really helped me going back to it. So I, I always encourage people to try different things, you know, anything that's going to help you with that awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But again, the thing about meditation, mindfulness practice is that it's basically a practice of letting the mind relax. And when the mind, when the mind relaxes, the body relaxes Mm -hmm. and also the perceptions open and the intelligence opens. So it's like all the habitual mind, I had to practice now. I'm going to practice like crazy. Da, 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 da. Um, all the, Whatever the habits are, whether it's overwork or getting uh, excessively caught up in passionate energy and losing your balance with that or whatever it is, um, meditation relaxes all the habits. So then you say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I don't have to work that hard. Maybe there's another way to play this phrase. Mm-hmm. How does it actually sound? And then, but somebody has to teach you, you know, how can you use your body and and ears to create a completely different result? There's another one of my guests, her episode hasn't been released yet. And she had said to me, um, when I became a meditator, I wasn't bored again. She said it better than that, but basically there was always something to notice. And... Hmm. That's great. That's true. Um, you know, we moved to um, a very quiet, peaceful suburb of Philadelphia a little over a year ago after being in New York for 43 years. <laughs> and oh my God, it's just totally different. And just being in the kitchen. Well, first of all, instead of looking at a wall, I'm, I'm looking at a beautiful garden with a pond. <laughs> I mean, you know, but and the sun comes in, but you know, that's a big difference, but there's not a lot of racket. It's quiet. It is the trees are taller than the houses. It's this beautiful, natural uh, healing environment. And I just naturally want to go slower. Mm-hmm. And then I naturally start enjoying putting the spoon in the dishwasher, you know, whatever it is, that's our birthright to actually enjoy simple things. And the more we can enjoy those simple things, the more we can enjoy playing a single note on our instrument. Mm -hmm. 
You just brought me back to the beginning of the pandemic when we were locked down and I was, you know, feeling pretty closed in. It was winter here. And I would sometimes have like a nature scene just playing on a screen just to have like the feeling of being mm -hmm. in a lush forest. And then somebody told me about this app, I think it's called Window Swap, where people would just have a still image of what's outside their window and you could just travel virtually into someone else's world. And I did this quite a few times. It was quite magical because it was quite random. You'd suddenly be in Barcelona or in wherever, all over the world. People would submit their window, what they were seeing outside their window. It's great. <laughs> yeah, the internet has opened up the world. It's really true. That's fantastic. Did you have routines in place before the lockdowns that, that helped you get through that? Routines before the lockdown that helped me get through the lockdown? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Well... I, you know, you're already a meditator. I'm just curious if there were things that anchored you in your life. Many people I spoke to, and I'm one of those people. I just, I knew every day I would write in my journal. I would go for a walk. I would do these certain things, no matter what else was going on. Even mm -hmm. if concerts were canceled and, you know, I had to teach suddenly online and all these things were going on. I just had these things I could depend on that kind of helped me. That's really smart and excellent. I mean, I, first of all, I was already teaching online. Mm -hmm. Not not everybody, but, you know, a lot of people um, in different locations. And then um, as soon as the pandemic hit, uh, we had to cancel our in-person summer program. I got together with three faculty members and said, we're going to do an online program. And in four months, it happened. But it was really hard. Mm -hmm. But that focus was uh, very motivating. And uh, the guys were great. Um, everybody contributed something. And we got this great Zoom control person and all these rooms were happening. And, you know, it was fantastic. We got 60 people from 10 time zones and it was great. I'll never do it again because it was exhausting. But, but I was occupied with that. And then, of course, I was just teaching most people online, although I had a few students in New York, so they were coming to my apartment if they'd been vaccinated. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the truth is, Leah, I'm... I'm a homebody <laughs> and living in New York, I was definitely a homebody. I love the peacefulness of just being in my own home where I've created a lovely environment. And um, I do journal a lot. I've done that since I was 13 years old. Mm -hmm. I write poetry a lot and uh, I stay in touch with friends on the phone or on zoom sometimes and, um, and have a great husband and, you know, we just, uh, lived my life and of course I would go to Riverside Park which was a block away from where we lived um, but within a few months we were on the trail to get out of the city and so many people left New York uh, the pandemic because of uh, working from home made being so possible people was got out of there and uh, we were one of them and so I wasn't a performer. I think, you know, for you and for all these millions of people who are performers, I can't imagine what it was like because it's not like you can perform on Zoom and be in sync because you can't. And um, I mean, what? how was that for you to give up performing for a certain time? I think it was the not knowing. Like a lot of people said that to me. If you knew, you wouldn't be able to perform for that time. Um, so the that was difficult or the fear when we first went back, we weren't vaccinated and the virus was quite dangerous at that point. So yeah. 
wearing two masks and keeping distance from people. <sighs> I mean, I started this YouTube channel and I was making recordings every day uh, for a long time. And I was doing much more teaching than normal. And I had different ways of coping that gave me purpose because we all need purpose in yeah. our life. Right. And certainly I started this podcast later. It was in two, uh, May of 2021, but that connection with musicians all over talking about important things like this just has continued to be incredibly therapeutic for me and I hope for other people. Oh yeah. I mean, you're doing a fantastic thing. I'm sure everybody's super grateful for it. I I am, you know, and uh, you know, podcasts in general have totally taken off. So it's a, it's a great, it's a real gift, you know, this uh, addition to our lives. So, you know, but I'm happy for you and all the other musicians who can finally perform in person. Oh, yeah. I mean, what was it like when you started performing in person? When we first started they, uh, where I live, it was very limited numbers. So in a hall that I think we have 2,300 seats, there were, I think, maybe 200 allowed. So maybe there were 100 people all spaced out in masks. It was spooky. And you'd, they'd be clapping enthusiastically, but it, it just wasn't the same feeling. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, we finally, I remember doing some uh, shows that were really full and just the feeling and the energy in a room. It was incredible. Yeah. If we could just go back to something, I'm just curious because I only started journaling for real um, in my 50s a few years ago, and I mm. found it very, very therapeutic, especially reading back entries. Mm. And do you make mm. a point of reading back like a year or two ago to see where you're at. Just once in a while I get curious and I pick up one of them. I mean, I have notebooks all over. I mean, the basement has a big box. <laughs> I got rid of a lot when we moved, but I ran out of time because I wanted to recycle, which meant take out the spiral binding. And you know, <laughs> so I still have too many, but um, it is interesting. I mean, I, one thing that's very valuable to me is some notes I took when my daughter was first born and, um, special things about her as she was growing up that have a lot of meaning. Um, and um, I started doing it when I was 13 because my cousin and I, she was the same age, we would complain about our parents to each other all the time. And she said, you know, when I get like that, I just write everything that comes into my head. And then I started doing it. It just, that was it. Um, I think uh, now people call it a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that when you write, you can connect to what's, what is it I feel and, and what do I want to say? And sometimes when I wake up in the morning, frequently, typically when I wake up in the morning, I, I have a big space before I have to teach or do any work, like three hours or something. And what did I just dream? What does that mean? Da, 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 da. And where am I today? And today I seem kind of distracted. And, and then I can kind of, you know, zoom in on what's actually where I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. It is a mindfulness practice. So, but everybody's different. Some people don't like to write. <laughs> they don't, they don't care about their feelings and, and all these details and everything. So that's fine, you know, but I have, uh, <laughs> I have an extremely emotional nature and I need to <laughs> corral this stuff, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> so I can make some sense out of myself. <laughs> and Madeline, in terms of your work as a a private teacher I'm curious uh, you'd written a bit, little bit in the book it really resonated with me that you used to think when you were a much younger teacher okay they play and then I will give them feedback and they will improve and there's this sort of set steps and at a certain point you let go of that yeah so when I was 29 you know I occasionally made a little money from a concert but basically I was teaching for a living and I wasn't enjoying it 
So I thought, well, this is bad. I have to find a way to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So I asked a student of mine, she was teaching respiratory therapy in a hospital. Do you know any good books about teaching? And she recommended this extraordinary book, Freedom to Learn by Carl Rogers. So I got the book and uh, I flipped out. And I underlined and I put all these asterisks and I just couldn't believe it. it was all about finding out what the student already knows before you try to feed stuff into them. And I was really delighted with this book. And then after three weeks, three weeks after I had been reading it, it occurred to me in the middle of a lesson that I wasn't applying anything I had read. <laughs> and the, the lesson wasn't going well. And the, the student was 17 years old. And I said, so what do you think of how you displayed? And she just pretty much told me everything I would have told her myself. So I didn't have to waste my breath. Plus, the main thing was I got to know her mm -hmm. and find out how smart she was. And then we could have a conversation and she could develop that perceptiveness and intelligence because we were talking together. Mm -hmm. um, and I could learn from her. And I just loved teaching after that. And it, like 10-year-old kids could just, you know, so what did you think? How was it? Well, um, my posture was pretty bad at this place, but, uh, you know, this was okay. But, you know, I had a problem in this phrase here. And it's, again, I would have told her those things. So what does she need me for, right? She needs me to add to what she already understands, help her deepen her understanding. And, of course, say things that she didn't think of or notice herself. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, but it's a collaboration. And um, when I train teachers, I train them to teach that way. So for instance, last year I did an, I taught an 18 week advanced piano teacher training program for three people who had been working with me for a while. And they were literally teaching each other specific repertoire, six weeks on Mozart sonatas, six weeks on Chopin etudes and six weeks on Ravel. And they really learned how to do it. And it was incredible to see that they would just sit there and trust themselves to say, I don't know, let me think about that and just be real, you know, and be with that person so that that person could trust them as a real person and as somebody who valued their own thinking and everything. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's called student-centered teaching. Um, a lot of people know about it. I mean, at Teachers College, which is part of Columbia in New York, they teach student-centered teaching. Um, when we were looking for, uh, in, I guess, an uh, elementary school for our daughter in New York, we went to Bank Street School, which is really an enlightened school. And they were talking about how they taught. And the kids were actually in the room to show it. And they were all at tables instead of desks and uh, sharing a table. And the teacher said, okay, so today's topic is Indonesia. What do you already know about Indonesia? And then the kids, you know, so was like respect and appreciation of those people who were your students. Um, it's a totally different experience to teach that way. And um, it makes me really, really, really happy to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked a little bit about um, perfectionism and, and nerves. What is your What are your feelings about people using uh, drugs like beta blockers to help with extreme nerves? Have you counseled mm -hmm. people on that? I think if they feel they need it, that's what they should do. But I've helped people get, I've only helped two people get off of them. But there was a cellist at a summer program who by the end of the week performed a piece without a beta blocker. She was really amazed. And then uh, Kirk Ferguson talks, 
to people sometimes about how he got off of beta blockers at the end of that program. And his story was that, you know, if he had to play a really exposed solo in the orchestra uh, and it was difficult, he would take a beta blocker before the performance. And I thought, okay, it's okay. But at the end of the summer program, which was just a six day program, he played a, a piece on the closing concert. Wasn't, uh, it wasn't a particularly old piece of his repertoire and it wasn't easy. It was a contemporary piece. Um, but um, he did it without a beta blocker and he said he played better than he'd ever played in his life. And it's partly because of the performing beyond fear exercises, partly because of the community um, and certain other work that I did with him in the sessions. Um, Cause each person in that program worked with me every other day. So they had three sessions with me and they were watching everybody else learn stuff, all these different instruments and talking at lunch and dinner. And, you know, so um, we had the elements that I think people need, which is accurate information about the body, training your mind to really relax so that it opens up using your ears in a bigger way so that the music's in your body doing the rhythmic grouping and having a supportive community. And I think without the community, it's not as easy mm -hmm. because when everybody's experiencing it together and you can talk, you know, it's a whole other thing. You know, it's like being on a college campus, you know, and sharing the learning experience. It, it really makes a difference. And you'd mentioned before abusive teachers. Now, I think in the classical world, unfortunately, there's a lot of what people even just call old school. It's not even what people might even think of overt psychological abuse, but it is in today's terms as we understand it. And I think yeah. it's a huge, huge legacy, which so many people deal with. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. I think it's not just in music teaching. I think it's in the entire evolution of humanity. And so nowadays, everybody's talking about healing from trauma and abuse of this and abuse of that. And, uh, you know, um, there have been books written about what happens in the schools and um, sometimes really people need a really good psychotherapist. I've been looking at different methods for, to recommend to people for healing from trauma. Um, I personally for years have used a, a method for my own stuff called the healing code which I discovered online accidentally several years ago. And it's like a six minute practice where you send healing energy to yourself about a particular issue. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've done so much work on myself that I'm pretty familiar with this kind of thing. Um, EMDR is something that really helps a lot of people with uh, healing from trauma, eye movement, desensitization, reprogramming. Um, I mean, it's a very, very powerful and efficient method for people. Um, there's a method called Hakomi. So in here in Philadelphia, we have a friend, an MD named Michael Bame, who's a mindfulness practitioner, and he ha started the Mindfulness Center at University of Pennsylvania, which has I don't know, 30,000 people have been through this program. And um, he uses this Hakomi method. I said, well, what is it? And I, we didn't have much time to talk about it. He says, well, he says something to a person and they notice how their body reacts. Mm. So he'll say, you are totally good. And the person noticed that these things happen in their body. Well, that's already part of the healing process. Mm. 
Um, I think that people do have to heal on the body level because it's where the emotions are and when the memories are in there. Um, but I guess, you know, personally, I was very fortunate. Um, nobody forced me to practice. Nobody was telling me how to practice. Nobody, I didn't even hear the word practice till I was 12 when a friend of mine at school said, how much do you practice? I said, what's that? Because I, I would just go from school and play the piano. I mean, that's how I learned, right? So um, it was a joyful experience for me. Um, my father did once get tired of hearing the same mistakes over and over in this piece. And he said, I'm going to stand outside the door and I want you to play this thing three times in a row without mistakes. So I did it and I got so mad at him afterwards. He never did it again. <laughs> I mean, he was, he, he knew that it was a bad idea, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had very healthy messages that way, but so many people don't. Yeah. Um, there's the student I talked to who at the age of six played a wrong note in a recital and her parents locked her out of the house in the snow because they felt ashamed of her. I mean, that's just, what can you say? You know, um, Long Long is a famous story also, you know, so, um, there's a lot of it, but, um, I do think that the, uh, publicity around this is helping things change just like the people with the perform the performance related injuries it's that's helping it uh, become more public awareness and uh, there are more professionals there to help and all that so I think it's going to take a while mm -hmm. you know I mean the whole world is so loaded with trauma all the time that you know for a person to to have a clear path available to them to work through their personal issues um, it takes a lot of support. Well, it's hard with music because we're usually one-on-one -on -one and you're at a vulnerable age and mm. the parents probably don't know what's going on. So if this person's getting these very negative, punitive messages all the time. Oh, from the teacher. Yeah. Okay. So again, it depends what kind of family it is. I mean, I had one teacher when I was 13 years old who... He said at one lesson, he said something he really shouldn't have said. And I asked my dad for, to find me another teacher. And he found me one of the three master teachers in the Bay Area. But, the you know, it was a Chopin nocturne. I was playing it. I was using pedal. Of course, everybody does that. And he told me, no, it's supposed to be dry. No pedal. Haven't you ever sat up under the moon at night with your boyfriend? Oh, you probably don't have a boyfriend. Yeah. That was enough. I told my father, get me another teacher. I don't want this anymore. You know, but... That was a healthy situation I was growing up in, basically. Um, I recently heard about a 17-year-old who first got an injury at the age of five. Mm. I had never heard of that because the teacher would give silver, bronze, or gold stars for how, how fast you could play a skip. Oof. So this is like, um, it's still happening, <laughs> right? So... Um, yeah, teachers. And the, the thing is, there's another trend now where teachers are afraid to criticize because there's been so much talk about being abusive and hurtful. Mm -hmm. And so all they do is give compliments, which is really not enough either. You have to give constructive feedback in a kind and helpful way, <laughs> you know, but, you know, that's the thing is that who's really trained as a music teacher? You know, I mean, the piano pedagogy courses I've heard of don't get into the stuff that I get into when I train my teachers. Um, 
And I feel, so I think that that field is uh, emerging and developing also because we're learning, you know, so if this doesn't help, what does? And when you think about what a music teacher has to know and they, they, you know, it's like doctors can be sued for malpractice. So if the teacher gives you a, a technique that causes you an injury, you know, I did hear years ago that a, a voice student was going to sue her teacher for causing an injury, but I don't know what happened with that. Um, but really, you know, we have to teach them the technical mastery of the instrument. That is an encyclopedia of information right there. And there's a lot of controversy about technique anyway. Then you have to teach them how to connect with the heart and mind of a genius composer and really, you know, finely tune their ear to every little moment. And who teaches that, you know? And then, like, as I said, the rhythmic grouping, very few people ever even heard of it. So, um, and then the main thing is you have to be a nice person. <laughs> you have to treat this person like a human being. And so that means you gotta, you have to be at a certain point in your own development that you're able to basically do that. Not that you never make mistakes, but that your fundamental attitude is one of love and respect. Mm -hmm. you know? Beautifully expressed. Are you continuing with your teacher training as well? Yeah, this year I'm planning, uh, that was for advanced piano teachers. I'm, I'm planning to do an intermediate level piano teacher training this year. And I'm also starting to design a teacher training for people who have never worked with me. So we'll alternate private lessons. And then the next week there'll be uh, a session where they teach one of the other people something that they just learned. And then they watch that person teach somebody else and et cetera. And if that happens over a period of several weeks, um, I think this is doable, and I've thought about it a lot. Um, about 20 years ago, I taught a course in uh, New York called Unleashing Natural Piano Technique, and it was a five-week program. People had four private lessons and three workshops. So there were four participants. So that had seven sessions in five weeks, and they changed hugely. And that's where the person I mentioned who had the problem with her fingers up, mm -hmm. she recovered from her injury at the end of those five weeks. They had never worked with me before in any way. And they were learning by watching and doing and absorbing and practicing. And I, I, I really think that uh, this is something I need to do too, mm -hmm. because I think there's an interest in it and it's, it's an important thing. One of the things um, that resonated in your book for me, of course, you you know, you talk about pre preparation to the deepest level, but then you do address the issue that for, let's say, a collaborative pianist, maybe they're accompanying, you know, 100 students or people like myself, uh, full-time orchestra musicians, where we just have a conveyor belt of new music coming at us all the time. Right. You can't always be feeling that you are prepared with all the details of the music as you'd like. Right. So you tell me, how do you do it? Because <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've, of course, I've done collaborative piano a little bit in my 20s and stuff, but it was never a major activity of mine. And I've always had tremendous respect for these people because they rise to the occasion, you know, they they serve the purpose of that moment to the best of their ability and they're highly skilled and they put their heart into it. I think that's incredible, but I'm really curious how you actually do it in an orchestra. Well, I think it's a lot of the same thing that you're going, I mean, you have to apportion your work so you don't get too focused on that one really hard thing and forget about all these other things 
you need to be prepared with and like a more holistic view, I would say. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized just the listening in the moment in every rehearsal is going to give you more than, I don't know, there's a lot we could get into around that. But what what you said about rising to the occasion and, and just respecting yourself for all the all the years of preparation and excellence you have and giving yourself the gift of that respect. If you go in with that feeling, you won't feel overwhelmed because you need to play with ease and you need to have that open awareness. And if you lose those things, then it's a losing battle. Then you'll start to make mistakes left and right and you won't be able to enjoy the music. And if you don't enjoy the music, then what's, you know, it's just a paycheck, which is not what you, why you are doing all this. Right. So it sounds like you're doing a great job of enjoying the music and rising to the occasion with, you know, the support of your fellow musicians. And it's got to be pretty high pressure. It is. And people don't realize, I mean, you're expected to turn up at the first rehearsal with everything at tempo, you know, knowing everything backwards and forwards. That is the expectation in a high level orchestra. And I think what helps a lot of us is just that feeling of being part of a team. Yeah. Supporting your colleagues. I always think right. about that no matter how, you know, and I, I had children and you're, you're sometimes you're just dealing with all kinds of things in your personal life and you just have to put that aside. And, mm-hmm. and also there's a freshness in the fact that you're always playing different music, even if it's the 20th right. time you've played that symphony still, you have, maybe haven't played it in two years. It's just that feeling of, Oh, and that this audience is showing up for this program. So let's bring this. Program. Great. That's really great. Um, I actually interviewed a dancer from uh, Joffrey Ballet who told me sometimes, you know, he had to play, dance the same thing like 1,300 Mm -hmm. times or something. And he said he would just tell himself, maybe somebody's going to come to this performance who's never even seen dance before. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it for them. And actually, he was in the audience once at a performance and at intermission, he was in the lobby and this 19-year-old guy comes up to him and says, excuse me, but Mr. Holder... um, I saw you dance when I was four years old at the Kitty Matinee. And it's because of you that I became a dancer. <laughs> there you go. That's how it happens. And so he had that strength within him to focus on what really mattered. And I, you know, in a way, I'm almost envious of people who have the experience you have where, you know, you just have to repeatedly find that place in yourself because I think that strengthens you. And the team is great. I mean, Kirk Ferguson, who I mentioned, who's assistant principal trombone in Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, um, he said he chose that orchestra to audition for partly because he knew that the brass section was really a team Mm -hmm. and that other orchestras, it's not necessarily such a good team experience. So I, I, I get that, you know. And of course, pianists, you know, we're soloists. And so... My community is actually my students because we share the same views, basically. And uh, uh, but also my fac- fellow faculty members, so we get to do things together. Mm-hmm. So. Do you think pianists play enough chamber music? Uh, I don't know what enough is. I mean, I absolutely adore chamber music. I wish I had done more of it. I mean, I did recite with the cellos. I worked with a violinist a lot, and. Um, performed the Mozart uh, Kegelstadt Trio in San Francisco. I mean, and I performed with a flutist who came over from the Netherlands once in San Francisco. And I mean, I love that, you know, it is just, there's nothing like it. It's the most glorious 
intimate celebratory experience to make music with another person. And I remember attending um, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and watching the musicians sort of smile at each other and signal each other. And it's just, it's a very, very special relationship and experience. Um, You know, it depends on the person. I always was interested in particular repertoire. So whether it was my own recitals or playing with uh, another musician, it was the repertoire that drew me, you know? So uh, I played with a clarinetist quite a bit in New York and we also played at Phillips Gallery in Washington. I mean, he flat Brahms sonata, it's a viola piece, you know? Ah, unbelievable. Or G major Brahms violin sonata, unbelievable. And I will listen to this stuff just on and on because there's nothing like it. I think also it was great and it was that we were required to be in the chorus as pianists in music school. And in Indiana, we had this fantastic conductor, Fiora Contino, she was amazing. And we did the Mozart C minor mass with her. I will never forget it. That's one of the greatest pieces in the literature. Absolutely phenomenal. And we did the Brahms Requiem. Mm -hmm. So, that was an incredibly glorious experience, you know, standing in the middle of, you know, a hundred people and big orchestra and the whole thing. And then seeing and hearing all the other, I mean, you know, so it must be like that to be in the orchestra. The only thing is that in the orchestra, you're getting somewhat of a distortion because the instruments closest to you are what you're hearing the most. Cause when I've soloed with orchestras, you know, I'm mostly hearing the instruments that are right around the piano. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting. My orchestra, we move around quite a bit and sometimes we sit antiphonally. So as a violinist, I've really sat in many, many different places. And when I'm right in front of the winds, it's totally different. But what I meant with my question, do pianists play chamber music enough? I guess I was thinking as pianists who are serious and they're growing up, I'm wondering if they have an, enough opportunity to play with other people because they're you know so much alone and the piano solo repertoire is so huge. So I wonder if they get to be the age of 25 and they've rarely played with other people. You know what I mean? I think it would be great if chamber music was required on the undergraduate level. Yeah. It was uh, an elective. And I think it would be great if it was required. Um, you learn so much playing with different instruments and in a small group and, um, and the literature is phenomenal. Yeah. Madeline, did you want to talk a little bit more about your upcoming seminars or, or future plans? Yeah. So this, uh, on uh, May 11th, I'm teaching a free interactive workshop. It's, it's uh, actually for all musicians, although the title uh, is aimed at pianists, but almost all of it applies to all musicians. It's called Mindfulness for Pianists, Freeing Your Energy for Performance. Some of the things I've been talking about in this conversation, uh, we'll be going into depth with a lot of that. And there are going to be uh, some a set of mindfulness exercises that everybody will learn and do on the spot that can clear your mind and open things up. Um, I will be teaching the Performing Beyond Fear exercise, which we've mentioned, and that will be demonstrated by a volunteer from the group um, in a before and after. So when I do that, first I describe the exercise, then somebody plays one minute of music, and then um, we all do the exercise, including that person, and then they play the same minute of music, and it's always really transformed because it's not only for getting past performance anxiety, it's for connecting with your deep communicative energy. And so it cuts through 
surface stuff to this very profound kind of well of emotional and human power that really um, immediately goes into the music. So that's the last demonstration, but there will be a demonstration of uh, how to align your body and get more power out of the piano. Somebody can volunteer for that on the spot. There will be uh, the body and sound awareness exercise will be taught in a particular way at the piano. Somebody can volunteer for that also. So right from the beginning, it's going to be back and forth with the audience, you know, what is mindfulness and see what people say and um, what was the effect of this exercise and feedback on the demonstrations that happened and then a Q&A at the end. So it's really designed to give people some real tools to develop more confidence in their abilities um, because the whole idea of mindfulness and of the art of practicing is confidence comes from connecting to your natural abilities. So if you really are using your body, your mind, your ears, the way they're meant to be used, um, you get a much better result and you can trust that because you did it. It's, it's your natural thing that's coming through that somehow couldn't come through before because of a lot of habits. Mm-hmm. More confidence in, in performance, more connection to the instrument and practicing, uh, feeling more grounded and in command uh, of your instrument and, uh, and really having the experience of much more expressiveness coming through with less effort. Um, so that's what's going to be demonstrated and talked about. Um, and people are going to come away with some real tools that they can use before and during their practicing and also right before they go on stage. I love teaching this workshop. It's, it's really great. I mean, you never know what people are going to say. And uh, the first time I did it, uh, the first question uh, was came from a trumpeter, mm-hmm. which was great. That's on May 11th, which is a Thursday, and it's at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern till 2.15. So it's um, people can sign up for it on the website, um, uh, which is artofpracticing.com slash free hyphen interactive hyphen workshop. Um, and I'm really looking forward to doing this workshop again. Wonderful. Great opportunity. Well, yeah, and then I will be later doing a six-week piano masterclass series that's following that. But um, I'm really focusing, I'm emphasizing this workshop right now. Uh, the, I'm not going to be making the recording available because partly because people are going to volunteer for things, and I don't want to have you know risk that the recording of what they did will go somewhere else. So, so hopefully people will uh, participate, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks so much for sharing your your wisdom and your experience today. It's been really inspiring. You're so welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to get to know you a little bit and hear all these rich and uh, brilliant experiences that you've had. I know so little about being an orchestra musician, and I know you teach also. And um, It's really great to hear that you've been doing some wonderful things with your practice and, and performing. Well, it's a process. It sure is. <laughs> Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thanks for following the series on your favorite podcast player and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, all of which help find new listeners. I have lots more episodes coming in this season three with a fascinating diversity of musicians and our stories and music. Have a great week.